Stanford University. Welcome to WE380. I've been informed that today is February 11th. Um, I have had some uncertainty on that particular issue. Um, those of you who view this, uh, view 380 on the web may have noticed that last week's talk disappeared. Sucks to be you. It was a really great talk, but occasionally there are things that, that um, there are reasons that our speakers don't want talks to appear on the, the web. And um, you've got some excellent alternatives, but you could have viewed those anyway. Um, next week's talk, if you follow the uh, website, is still up in the air. Uh, we hope to have that nailed down by Tuesday morning yesterday. Uh, that clearly hasn't happened. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen. Today's talk is about elections and voting machines, specifically computer voting machines, which, I mean, it's clear that we're going to use computers for voting machines. I mean, we have computers and air fresheners these days. I was at Target this morning and noticed that they have these little electronic things that squirt fragrance. And some poor guy or gal uh, applied for a job and said, yes, I want to write code to squirt fragrance. Um, good for that person. Um, and computers, well, you know, what could go wrong? I mean, they're really good at counting, except for the ones that aren't. Uh, and sometimes that's intentional. Uh, and sometimes it's less intentional. And today's talk will be about how voting machines might not do what they're supposed to do, then the question is, what are they supposed to do? As Stalin said, let me count the votes, and I don't care about the rest of the process. Um, and I'll confess, I have participated in voter fraud. I've stuffed a ballot box. Um, and you might want to think during today's talk, are voting machines, I mean, voting machines are clearly important, but how many ways are there to rig an election and how many of them are stopped by perfect voting machines? Barbara Simmons. Thanks. Well, I've been talking about this stuff now for about five or six years. And what I've been doing before is just taking the old talk, taking out a few slides, putting in a few new ones, and that's the new talk. And, but I was afraid there are people here who might have heard some version of the old talk. So I decided to start all over, which is why I just finished this an hour ago. Um, and do this from a high level, what have we learned perspective. I, I was asked to send um, the title and abstract before I'd written the talk. So uh, this is probably the title I should have used. Uh, things we've learned since the turn of the century, and I mean, of course, the one that we're currently in. Um, and this is a note, just a reminder. Uh, folks like me who've been doing this for five or six or seven years tend to use acronyms like in any field. Uh, a bit more freely than we should. So uh, this is please stop me if I'm using something which you don't recognize, or even if I've used it before. So disclaimer, um, as we've heard, there is no perfect voting system. And that includes not only paper, not only computers, but paper. There just isn't a perfect voting system. And I suspect there never will be, uh, because of course, no matter what system you have, you have to worry about insider fraud. And that's just a really, really, really hard problem. Research, build a better one. I mean, I think there's a lot of research opportunities in this area. 
but warning, financial obstacles. Um, because there is a big investment. Not only do you have to build it, but you have to uh, then worry about getting things t tested and certified. Uh, this is a problem. Um, and uh, I, I, by the way, I'm, in this talk, I'm not actually going to talk about open, open source, but if you want to talk about it, we can do that in the discussion period. I mean, I happen to like open source, but it's not a panacea, in my opinion. So what happened? Well, we all know Florida 2000. 2002 was actually was the trigger for the Help America Vote Act. Help America Vote Act was passed with almost $4 billion, with a B, to be spent over four or five years, depending on how you read it. Uh, although New York still hasn't gotten their money and still hasn't, done the, hasn't, hasn't gotten rid of the lever machines because they claim that there, uh, there are no machines available right now which satisfy their, their standards. And so they're just not going to spend the money and they're not going to replace these lever machines, even though they are starting to fall apart. Um, <coughs> There was a key part of this Help America Vote Act, which was that people with disabilities had to be able to vote independently and in private. And this has been used, to some extent, politically, as a way to force states and localities, by threat of lawsuits, to purchase these touchscreen voting machines, which um, many of us have been fighting now for several years. Um, so most of these touchscreen, so I say touchscreen voting, that's sort of, uh, a broad term to give people an idea of what, I, what we're talking about. But usually what we're talking about is direct recording electronic, or DRE. That's the first acronym. Although I imagine most of you have heard it if you've been following this area at all. Uh, direct recording electronic means that, that it actually record, the machine itself records the results. So for computer people, you can think already about problems you see. People, uh, election officials or voters, especially when these first came out, said, well, we can check, you're supposed to be able to check your results according to the Help America Vote Act. So you see it on the screen, you can verify that it's right on the screen, you can change it on the screen, and then you hit vote, enter my vote. And it's been so hard to convince people that what you see on the screen is not necessarily what gets stored in internal memory. I mean, that's a no-brainer for anybody who's had, you know, a first-year course in computer science. But if you've never done any computing, it's not a no-brainer. So, this is the level that we've been having to deal with in trying to, to explain to people the, the technical issues of these machines. <clears throat> and as I say, most were paperless, the initial ones. So since I'm doing sort of a high-level view, I just thought I'd talk, say briefly a little, little bit about the history. And I'm leaving out vast amounts of history and vast numbers of people in this. This is just high level. So Saltman was like one of the first technical people to get involved with this, and then later on, uh, Peter Neumann and Rebecca Mercury got involved, and I said New York there because at one point New York City was about to buy uh, some t t paperless DREs, and they brought in, I think, Peter and Rebecca, and they um, did some analysis and convinced New York City to cancel the contract, which they did at some loss, but they didn't get these machines. Um, and then around 2002, I think, around that time, David Dill, who's a professor of computer science here, started circulating a petition because he'd learned of these paperless DREs, and he was appalled. Uh, shortly after he started circulating it, we learned that Santa Clara County, here, was about to purchase some, some machines, paperless Sequoia DREs. And so a number of local computer scientists 
got involved with trying to convince Santa Clara County not to do this. And I remember going to meetings of the board of advisors, board supervisors, and sitting through three hours of presentations. Uh, some of you are nodding, maybe others of you have been to those meetings where, where then we were given, I think, 90 seconds or maybe two minutes each to make presentations. And there'd be a row of very prestigious computer scientists, you know, PhDs, well-known researchers from the area sitting there. And we'd be getting like one to two, two and a half minutes, and that's it. Whereas the vendors, of course, got vast amounts of time to convince uh, the board of supervisors that what they, what they had to sell was really good stuff. <clears throat> and of course, they would say things like, it's completely secure. It's been tested and certified, so you don't have to worry. And so and we were going up there and saying, well, wait a minute, we don't know. It was a hard message. Um, and I must say, we didn't prevail. The vote was three to two against us. One thing that did happen, however, was um, they added something to the contract that it said, if paper is ever required, the vendor has to pick up the tab. And subsequently, um, I think it was uh, Kevin Shelley, Sec Secretary of State Kevin Shelley, who did mandate paper. And so uh, Sequoia had to pay for that. Uh, but until uh, Bowen came in and got rid of these machines, that's what, that's what people were voting on here, was these Sequoia DREs. And in fact, I was an election worker in the 04 election. And, we, and it was still paperless then. Um, so then, uh, one, sort of like the first big uh, event was when the Johns Hopkins paper came out analyzing Diebold software. Um, and they got the software because Bev Harris, who is an activist, uh, not a computer person, but she's, she start, I think she's a journalist, uh, had been just wandering around the net and uncovered this open FTP website of Diebold where the software was. And just downloaded it. Yeah, I think it is. <laughs> exactly. It's, I mean, Diebold, I have to say, just speaking for myself, I'm very grateful to Diebold because they've served as sort of a poster child for everything that's wrong because they keep on screwing up. But um, it's not just Diebold. I mean, Diebold's got the bad rep, but hey, Sequoia ain't so good either. Or ESNS. I mean, the problem is none of them is good. So um, anyway, they came out with this paper, and it was a real, uh, you know, it, it really shook things up. Of course, Diebold attacked uh, Avi Rubin, the key author. Um, computer scientists started being vilified by election officials and, um, and uh, vendors. And I remember one situation where we were even accused of being Luddites, which I thought was rather amusing, given that you know, we're the techies, we're the ones with all the gizmos, and the people accusing us probably never written a piece of code. So what have we learned? First thing we've learned is that standards and testing done on currently deployed, currently deployed is keyword because most of the systems out there have been tested to old standards, are completely inadequate. So the old standards from 1990 and 2002 were developed by NASAD, another acronym, the National Association of State Election Directors. Election directors who de developed these standards. I mean, they did have some people with some quasi, you know, some technical experience, but they were not computer security experts working on these standards. One of, the th one of the aspects of these standards is that the vendors pay the independent testing authorities, or ITAs, directly. Now, this happens, I think, with uh, other kinds of testing for security. Uh, but in this case, there's a real issue because um, we don't know what the results of the tests are, even what these bad to mediocre tests 
the results were kept secret because they belonged to the vendors. And the reason I put down Kevin Shelley there is uh, he was this, the Secretary of State of California and he was very upset with Diebold. And so he tried to get a copy of the test results for the Diebold machines. He called the, the ITA that did the testing and they, they said to him, you're just the Secretary of State of California. You don't get the, the results. If you want these, go to Diebold because they're our customer, not you. And that's the way it still is. And a lot of these early tests were, were what people referred to as shake and bake. So they would test to make sure that you know, if, they got, if the machine got dropped, it would still function, that it could withstand extremes of temperatures. Now, these are all important things to test for voting machines, so I don't mean to belittle them. But, and then I think they did uh, the tests. We, I don't know what all the tests are because, again, that hasn't been public. But I believe they've done things like um, single entry, single exit loops, well commented. But, you know, that's not a thorough testing, certainly by, by any standards. Uh, there are a lot of things you're not going to catch that way. They basically, as I understand, had a checklist. So they didn't, for example, do exploratory testing to see if there were Trojan horses. So the security requirements were almost non-existent. The vendor was to specify access policy. The vendor was supposed to provide penetration analysis, but that analysis was not to be made available to the user jurisdictions. But, and COTS, which is commercial off-the-shelf software, was and still is exempted from testing. So, uh, for example, um, one of the things we learned is that Diebold uses uh, Windows CE. And Windows CE, of course, is a roll-your-own operating system. You're supposed to go in and make modifications to it. That's expected with Windows CE. And yet, that has been exempted from testing on the grounds that it's COTS. Um, so, basically, that's the statement about the COTS exemption. Now, there's a newer standard from 2005, which is a lot better. Um, it's the first of what's called the Voluntary Voting System Guideline, VVSG. And it was adopted by the Election Assistance Commission, the EAC. Now, I don't want to go into all of the Byzantine details of the structures that the Help America Vote Act set up, but the main organization is the EAC. That's supposed to be overseeing the distribution of the funding and making sure that, that things are working okay. Um, now, the 2005 standards, as it says, retain the COTS exemption. Um, and only recently have voting systems started to be improved to test it to the 2005 standards. Only recently. Now, there are some new standards, new, the so-called 2007 standards, which I think came out in 2008. And these reflect the, make, the fact that finally some really high-powered computer scientists were involved in the standards writing, in particular Ron Rivest at MIT and David Wagner at Berkeley. And um, they're on something called the Technical Guidance Development Committee. I, you know, I don't, again, that's just another thing that was created by HAVA. They're supposed to draft standards which the EAC is supposed to approve. So they came out with these standards which are somewhat tedious to read, but, but have a lot of interesting features. If you have the time, I suggest you sit down and at least look at, look at the security chapter, which I think is chapter four, because they've got a lot of really cool stuff in there, things that should have been there all along, but weren't. Uh, needless to say, this got a lot of people upset. For example, one of the things that, that nobody has ever done is have some requirement that we can know that the software that's running on this voting machine is the same software that was certified. That's not been in any of the standards. 
So they say, well, we should have digital signatures of cryptographic cash to verify this fact. Well, I mean, you know that the election officials don't even know what this means. And that's not to belittle them because it's not their job to know what it means. But it gets people nervous when they see things like that. Uh, they talk about software independence. And the notion of software independence is that a software error cannot change the election outcome without detection, which I think is kind of an interesting definition. And then they further broke it down to strong software independence, which basically said if there's an error, you can catch it, and weak software independence where you might not be able to recover. So, um, so for example, if you've got optical scan voting, which is what you have here now, thanks to Secretary of State Bowen, uh, basically what happens there is that you vote on a paper ballot, um, and uh, you connect an arrow between the office and the candidate of your choice. And this ballot is read through a scanner. The scanner can make mistakes. It could even change the outcome if it's rigged. But the paper ballots are there. So you can go back and look at the paper ballots. So that's strongly software independent. On the other hand, if you have a DRE with a, with a voter verified paper audit trail, these things that have been um, retrofitted, if you were, or modified, so that there's um, a continuous roll of paper that's printed, that's printed during the course of voting, and, these, and it jams, or there's a printing problem, and this happens quite a bit, then that VPAT can't be used to rectify the problem. You might know there's a problem, but you might not be able to figure out what it is. Another, ex well, an example of something which is not software independent, uh, in 2006, in a county in Florida, there was a, a massive undervote on paperless DREs. Um, Sarasota County, I believe it was, and um, in an area which was, which was more Democratic than Republican, the Democratic candidate lost by a small number of votes. There were a large number of undervotes. This is for the House of Representatives. It, it's clear that not all these people didn't intend to vote for this, this uh, office, because it was just way out of proportion to anything else, to the absentee ballots and to the votes in other parts of the state. Um, <clears throat> But there was no way to catch it, to correct it. There's no way. In fact, that's not even weakly software independent because you can't prove that there was a problem. It just stands to reason that there was a problem. Now, they also talk about, in the 2007 standards, something called independent voter verifiable records as an abstract notion because they didn't want to tie things down to paper per se. However, as of this point, the only way we know how to have independent voter verifiable records is to have some kind of paper. And um, again, that would mean that the systems that are out there that are paperless would not satisfy these standards. Uh, they also would allow open-ended vulnerability testing, which is certainly something that you want. It can increase the cost because you have no limit on what the testing is. Makes vendors nervous, makes election officials nervous requires usability benchmarks, and requires cryptographic protection of records from voting devices. Now, this is, this is just a few points. There's a great deal more of these standards, and obviously I'm not going into uh, all the details about the standards, uh, but they are on the web, and, and as I say, I think it's interesting reading. These standards were released for public comment in October 07, and have still not been accepted. As I say, there's been significant pushback from vendors and many election officials. They oppose software independence, they oppose open-ended vulnerability testing and many of the other mandates. The argument is that these other requirements will increase testing cost, that'll increase machine costs, that'll increase purchasing costs, and of course right now we have no money. 
That's the argument. Um, and, the t and the pushback is really quite serious. <clears throat> As an example of inadequate testing, in January 2007, the New York Times announced that Cyber, which is one of the ITAs, had been temporarily barred from approving new machines by the EAC. It was banned in 06, summer of 06, but nobody was told. Now, after they were banned, people had elections using machines that had been tested by cyber, which had been banned. And they, had no, they didn't know that there were problems with this ITA, because no one told them. Almost 70% of the voters, in fact, in the midterm elections had used machines tested by cyber. When the this, I, I'm telling this story not just to talk about the testing, but to give you a bit of the flavor, and, I, and, and later on I'll give you more of it, of how Alice in Wonderlandish this whole thing is. And it really, truly is. When the Times article came out, the EAC would not reveal the details. So Senator Feinstein demanded documentation. The New York State Board of Elections, which had been testing some machines, which I think they ultimately rejected again, using cyber to do the testing, halted the certification by cyber. And then they, they subpoenaed, they threatened to subpoena ESC and cyber for the information. At which point cyber gave in and provided the, the documents and the EAC followed suit. That's what it took to find out what the problems were. Now, California has been uh, very interesting because there have been two really uh, dedicated secretaries of state here. I mentioned Kevin Shelley. Uh, who I actually think may have been, I don't know how many of you remember, there was a big scandal about Kevin Shelley a few years ago and he had to resign. He was accused of harassment and misusing funds, although he was never charged of any, with any crime. Now, just speaking personally, I think that uh, one of the reasons he was uh, drummed out was that he was very clearly standing up to some of these vendors in, in a very dramatic way. And I think that they wanted to get rid of him. But you know, I, he, by the way, I think he thinks that too. Anyway, Secretary of State Bowen, who is the current Secretary of State, came in. One of her, one of her main platforms, points on her platform was that she was going to deal with these voting machines. And she did. By the way, if you ever have a chance to talk to her, if you, if those of you who haven't yet, she's very knowledgeable, she's a very interesting person to talk to. So what she did was she, she said before she was elected she was going to do this, and then she did. She had a top to bottom review top to bottom review. And uh, I, by the way, if anybody wants these links, I, I can give you the slide so you don't have to worry about writing anything down. Yeah? There's at least a missing decimal point in that last slide. I'm not sure. <laughs> I was thinking there was something to top to bottom review. Oh, elect.htm. OK. Right. Sorry about that. That's what happens when you finish your slides. <laughs> anyway, as I say, she was elected in November 06. Contract with the University of California to conduct review of machines certified in California. By the way, don't, you don't have to worry about the missing decimal. You can, you can do a search, a web search on this. You'll find it. <coughs> it was the most thorough exam that had ever been done on voting machines, which, again, is a sorry reflection on the ITAs. She created several teams, a red team, a source code team, a document te review team, and an accessibility review team, four teams. And there are a number of very prominent computer scientists on these <coughs> teams. The red team found they could break into all the systems that they were testing. The software review team found major security holes in the software of all the systems. 
The document review teams found testing reports incomplete and documentation frequently inadequate. These are the testing reports from the ITAs. And the accessibility team found machines that were impossible, difficult or impossible to use for people with certain disabilities. I should say difficult or impossible. Now, this accessibility report is something that a lot of people don't know about. Um, it's quite long, which is intimidating if you want to download it from the website, from the Secretary of State's website. But the second half of it is all about the, the testing mechanisms they use. So you can sort of ignore that if you just want to read about the accessibility stuff. And the first half has lots of pictures, and there's no executive summary which summarizes their results. So it's a bit opaque, but the pictures are very descriptive. And you can see how somebody in a wheelchair can have, can, the arm of the wheelchair will interfere with the handheld device that, you, the, the device that they're supposed to manipulate if they, if they have uh, problems. So, I mean, you can see how weight, or, or how the legs of the machine, that the machines are on, of the stands are too close together for the wheelchair to get underneath it, things like that. So, um, just to get an idea of some of the accessibility issues, you could download this article and just look at the pictures and not even read the text. Now, here's a picture not from California Review. This is actually from somebody else who's been working in this area. This is her mother who's had a stroke, trying unsuccessfully to vote on, uh, I don't remember now, the, I think it was Sequoia or ESNS. Um, she was actually not able to touch the machine. It's not completely obvious from this picture, but she wasn't able to get to the screen. Um, so she couldn't actually record the vote herself. So her daughter had to do it for her, even though the main argument for using these things is to allow people with disabilities to be able to vote independently. Furthermore, look at the privacy issue. You can see the screen. And again, there are problems with privacy for these in general, because they're frequent, these, these, these machines are daisy-chained, uh, because you have to, because you need to charge them up before the election to make sure they don't run out. They've got batteries, so, so there's a power outage, they can still work. And so they have to be daisy-chained, that's, that's the way they're set up. And a lot of uh, polling places only have one outlet or two, so they're, they're, they're set up in such a way frequently. This is the way we set them up here. I, and by the way, I was an election official on the Stanford campus. I'll tell you about that in a minute. And, um, and so they're set up so that privacy is, is a real concern anyway. But if someone's in a, you, you, at least you figure if you're standing in front of it, it's harder to see the screen. But if you're in a wheelchair, you're not even standing in front of it. So actually, my experience at Stanford, um, I guess I should tell that here. I, I, so I worked in 04 in the presidential election, and um, the precinct was one of the, 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 the voting was held in a commons room in one of the Stanford dorms. And a week before the election, and I was the, 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 the judge, so I was supposed to be in charge. I'd never done this before, but anyway. Uh, so the week before the election, the machines were delivered to the, to the commons room and just left there. Now, the woman who had arranged to have them delivered had asked the, uh, the people who do that to let her know when they're coming so she can be there to receive them, but they didn't. She came into work, found them there in the middle of the commons room, had them taken into her office where they stayed for a week uh, under her lock and key. Of course, she had complete access to these machines for a week, and anyone who had access to her office, such as janita you know, the maintenance, had access to the machines, and who knows who else had access to the machines. The night before we came in, we set them up, and as I say, we had to daisy-chain them. Now, the security was really hokey. Um, there were two levels of what they call tamper-proof tape, but, you know, it's really tamper-resistant tape. 
in training, I hadn't seen the tape. None of us had seen the tape. They didn't have it yet when we did the training. So I had no idea what it looked like. So when we came in there to set things up the night before, we were supposed to take off the first level of tamper-resistant tape, put it in a bag. That's proof that no one had gotten to them. Now, I didn't know what it looked like. I didn't know what the numbers were supposed to be. I had no way of knowing if anyone had gotten to them or not. Or, you know, this stuff is probably available elsewhere. So someone could quite possibly have gotten a hold of the same kind of tamper-resistant tape, say, from somebody even who's working for the Registrar of Voters' office and gotten some of it, put the same numbers on, put it back, and we wouldn't have known. Then the next, so they left overnight in the commons room. Not a very secure place, especially at Stanford. And the next morning, we come in at 6 in the morning, supposed to set them up, take off the second level of tamper-resistant tape, and voila. So, who knows if anything? No, we put them in a bag, and we're supposed to set them up to vote. Yeah, now you've taken, you've removed all security, and now, now you have... Well, you have to remove security when you're going to vote. People have to be able to vote. The idea was... Oh, okay. Well, I guess, well, but anyway, that's what we were told to do. We were also told if we found any without any tape on it, we were supposed to report that, in which case we were supposed to get new machines. Now, we got up, we got here at six, 6 in the morning, and I have to tell you, that's not my normal lifestyle. And um, it took us, we were frantic till 7, being able to open in time. There was a line, a long line by the time we opened, and we barely, barely were ready. If we'd had to get another machine, you know, that machine wouldn't have been up for a long time. Now, a real easy, really simple thing to do is just take them all off the night before. We'd had to get five new machines. And there's no way we would have been ready at 7 o'clock. Just no way. And if people had gone around and taken them off, in lots of places in Santa Clara County, they wouldn't have enough machines because these babies are expensive. They don't have twice as many as they need. So, so that's just a way to disenfranchise people. It, it'll be obvious what's happened, it's, you know, that it's, it's happened, but uh, still, you know, you might, might want to target people living in certain areas because you know how they're going to vote. Don't you have provisional ballots you could have used in that case? Yes, we did. We also started running out of provisional ballots. We had to get more of those because a lot of students come in and they say, well, I live in Texas, I want to vote. I say, well, I'm sorry, you're actually not going to, but give them ballots anyway. Or, or they just didn't bother checking what their precinct was. Yeah, provisional ballots you could have used, but it would have been very complicated. Yeah. So reactions to Bowen, getting back to the talk, vendors and many election officials denounced the results. John Tudor, who's the Napa County Registrar of Voters, said, there's never been any question about the accuracy or security of the touchscreen results for the five statewide elections that we've conducted using these machines. Now, I would like to know how he knows that. He claimed that Bowen was eroding the public's confidence in California's fair and accurate election process for crass political purposes. Now, this is not an unusual complaint. We are frequently accused of eroding public confidence by raising security issues. And it is a delicate balance because you don't want to you don't want to convince, get, convince people not to go vote, because then for sure their vote won't count. Vote by mail. Hmm? Vote by mail. That's not good. That's got a lot of security issues, too. People were doing that. At least less. <laughs> no, they're different. They're fairly different. Yeah. So what happened? At midnight, August 3rd, 2007. Now, the reason it was midnight was that, that there's a law in California saying if you're going to decertify a voting system, you have to do it at least six months before the next election. The California legislature had moved the primary early, remember? Remember the early primary? So 
after she announced the top to bottom review, the vendors dragged their feet. Took forever to get these things. And the, and the computer scientists who were working on it were frantic. And if you read their reports from the top to bottom review, they all say, if we'd had more time, we would have uncovered more problems. They, you know, it, they were really, really rushed. And I think that she was working on this to the very last minute because she had to come up with a list of requirements. Anyway, midnight, she decertified all of them. And the untested ENS, ES&S machine, the reason ES&S was untested was because they dragged their feet even more than the others and hadn't gotten their stuff in, in, in time to be tested. Um, then she conditionally recertified all but the ES&S system, which was subsequently recertified um, later, conditionally. And election officials sued Bowen. Now, they had also sued Kevin Shelley a few years earlier, uh, and he had won that case, and the judge sided strongly with Bowen in this lawsuit, based in part on uh, the outcome of the Kevin Shelley case. Ohio then, who also had a, there was a Secretary of State who came in in Ohio, also uh, promising to test machines, did, after the top to bottom review, did their own study called the Everest study, and some of the same people were involved with that. There were some different people too. And they reconfirmed all the top to bottom reviews findings, and then they found additional problems. Now, they had to um, destroy all their notes and everything afterwards. I mean, there's reports available, but there's a lot of <coughs> confidential stuff which they, which they had to get rid of. But uh, I was told by one of the people involved that they tried to, if you read the report, they tried to present sort of a roadmap for somebody who was going to do this again, give them an idea of where they should look. So, I mean, I'm not going to the Everest study just because this is supposed to be high level, a lot, lot of stuff here. So, what have we learned? Second point, replacing paperless DREs with voter verified paper audit trail, or VPATs as we fondly refer to them, is not a solution. <coughs> we thought initially it would be. When David Dale started his petition, basically he was calling for voter verified paper audit trail seemed like a logical thing to ask for. Then you've got an audit trail, you can audit it, you can check it. Little did we dream how bad they would be. They were poorly engineered, and basically what the vendors came up with was continuous roll thermal paper. Now thermal paper is what you get at a gas station when you get a receipt. And if you leave it out for a week, it fades. Sometimes the font is really hard to read even if you don't leave it out for a week. There are privacy concerns because it's continuous. It's the, vote, the, the votes are stored in the order that people go to the voting machine. They sometimes jam. The fonts can be small and difficult to read. And there are usability issues. For example, the ES&S iVotronic VPATs print out everything the voter does. You vote for candidate A, it prints that out. You deselect A and vote for B, it prints that out. It, vote, it keeps, a track, keeps track of everything you do, and there's no summary. So how the hell do you verify? I mean, it's really hard. It's it just from a usability perspective, it's badly designed. Almost as if somebody didn't want it to be easy, but I don't know. Uh, there's also a human factors issue that voters often don't verify their votes on these things. Again, part of the issue, part of the issue is that it's not that easy to do for many of them. And part of it is that voters just think, well, it's right on the screen. You know, I'm out of here or might feel time pressure because people are waiting in line to vote. There's all kinds of reasons why voters may not check, but they often don't. And then there's something which, uh, again, we didn't think about. I say we because, I mean, I think it was David Dill who initially came up with this, or maybe it was Rebecca Mercury. But anyway, you know, I can't claim 
credit for that, but we all were sort of buying into this notion of voter verified paper audit trails. Um, they can be hard to audit or recount, the whole continuous role thing. Especially, you could imagine, in the case of ESNS, where you don't even have a summary. Optical scan paper ballot systems, that's what you've got here, primarily, except for the devices that are used by people with disabilities, and I'll get to that in a minute. The best kind, again, is what you have here, which is precinct-based optical scans, because the voter can be provided feedback. One of the HAVA's requirements is that you should get feedback on, uh, uh, you know, if you overvote. Overvoting is voting like twice for president. That's an overvote. Um, and the scanners will tell you that, or at least they should tell you. If, it, if a scanner thinks you voted twice for president or too many times for some office, it'll spit your ballot out. Um, and in principle, of course, they can tell you if you've undervoted, not voted in, enough, you don't vote for this House of Representatives seat at all in Sarasota County, Florida. But it's, it's, it's an issue because people get confused if they're, they think maybe they made a mistake. Sometimes people undervote intentionally. I mean, this raises another peripheral issue, which is um, what about having none of the above as an option? I mean, many people have recommended that. But of course, that would require legal changes. And, and there are probably some, some political people who don't want that because... None, none of the above is very different than don't care. Or I don't care. Right. So, but something like that, which makes it clear that you know what you're doing, it wasn't, a, it wasn't an oversight, it wasn't a mistake. Yeah. The yeah. Don't care, I guess, is less judgmental. <laughs> Maybe none of the above and don't care. As but, but don't care may not require legal changes because it could be viewed as equivalent to not select. Maybe. Or maybe you have a not select, mm -hmm. even. No selection. No selection. Maybe. That's an interesting thought. <laughs> should get you involved in that one. Um, anyway, undervotes are an issue because people, I mean, I hardly ever vote for all the judicial positions. You know, I mean, that's just stuff I, I don't vote for. Because I just don't know it, and I think I'm better off not voting than voting where maybe it's not the wrong, the wrong vote. Anyway, um, then there's also central count. Now, this is what's used for absentee voting, is central count, optical scanners. One problem, this, one problem with that is that you get no feedback. And you, I, I, I believe that there have been studies that show that, and in fact, I'm sure this is true, you're going to have a higher error rate with central count. For the right, because you don't get the feedback. So, you know, it just stands to reason. And that's what you, as I say, for vote by mail absentee ballots. Also, these optical scan systems have paper ballots, so they're relatively easy to audit and recount. I say relatively, everybody talks about Minnesota, but you know, things actually went very well in Minnesota. I mean, the number of problems was very small compared to the large number of, of ballots. And, you know, some of the problems were self-caused. So scanners. Scanners can vary in sensitivity, and they can have problems with humidity, reading different marking implements, and so on. And a number of these voting systems use older <coughs> scanner technology. So there's better technology which could be used. Uh, again, one of the issues is if you're going to change the technology, you've got to go through the certification process again, and that's expensive. I mean, th you know, these are just things to think about when you think about how are we going to reform the system. And, of course, they contain computers, so they could have bugs or malicious code. Uh, and one of the interesting things is, how do you test these systems? Now, 
some frequently, and this is sort of amazing, that when they're, so there are tests that are done on these voting systems before elections by, you know, by the local election officials. You've got the machines there and you test them just to make sure they're working. You know, there are various tests you can do. <coughs> One of the tests that's often done for scanners is you, you put different uh, testing ballots through where you make sure that every position gets a mark. But if you do that, if, if you only do it where each position only gets one mark, you have no way of telling at the end when you look at the results whether or not the scanner disambiguates correctly between different candidates. I, this is sort of obvious when you think about it, but again, some things are not obvious to people unless you point it out to them. So for example, in the 2004 primary, there's a case where Gephardt got a lot of votes after he had withdrawn. I forget what state it was. And they went back and looked, the, the, the people, and this is on paper ballots. So they went back and they could look at the ballots. And it turns out, in fact, that Gore was the one who'd gotten the majority of the votes. I mean, you know, he's, he was essentially the winner at that point. So the Gephardt vote didn't make any sense. Now, nobody ever said what had happened, but my guess is that when the ballot definition files were written, that somebody flipped Gephardt and Gore. And my guess also is that that was just a mistake. You know, I don't think someone was trying to rig an election. I think it was a mistake. People make mistakes. And you have to be able to, when, whenever you've got software or computers, or th you have to be able to catch these honest mistakes. So I think that's what happened. But I don't know. So machines for people with disabilities, um, there, there have been tactile ballots around for a while. They were used in Rhode Island and in, 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 some, in some other countries and so on, a few places. Uh, and these, these frequently tend to have templates. You put a template over it. So you have a paper ballot. You put a template over it where you can have raised marks that people who are blind can, if they read Braille, can read. And then they can feel where, this, where the hole is or the slot, and they can just color it in, you know, pencil it in. And it, because it's a template, you know, it just gets the mark where it's supposed to be. <coughs> now, there are problems with write-ins. In fact, write-in is a problem in general for people with disabilities uh, in these, these various systems. And some of the more, uh, like VotePad I think has headphones also, so it'll tell you what's there, you can, you can get feedback, but VotePad hasn't gone anywhere. That's, that's, a, that's one of the systems with a tactile ballot and a template. DREs with headphones. Now as I said, the California Top to Bottom Review had negative accessibility results with that, but they were touted as being the way to provide, to make it possible for, voter, for voters with disabilities <coughs> to vote independently and in private. Then there are ballot marking or generating devices. And these are kind of interesting. The one that is most widely used is the automark. And the way the automark works is you take a blank optical scan ballot and you insert it into the machine. And then it, it operates kind of like a DRE. You've got a touch screen. You've got headphones. You've got uh, other devices for people to use. Um, uh, you've got a SIP puff, which is available for somebody with severe <coughs> mobility issues. And the automark was designed to be used by people with disabilities, so it is much more accessible. Accessibility is sort of the buzzword, meaning works for people with disabilities. And, and it's much better. I mean, it's not perfect, as I said. There aren't any perfect systems. But it's much better than the DREs that are there. What it does at the end, when the voter finalizes his or her ballot, it simply marks the optical scan ballot. It does not store anything internally. And then you have an optical scan ballot, which has been marked. You can read it back, but it doesn't read from the ballot. I mean, there are ways in which it can be improved. But OCR is kind of comp doing uh, optical character recognition is non-trivial thing to do with ballots. That's another area to look at if people are looking at 
interesting problems. That's not an OCR problem because you can pre-record the ballot, you know, the ballot format, and then you all you have to do is detect the mark on the ballot, and that's not an OCR. Problem. I guess that's right. Yeah. But in general, you'd like to be able to OCR these things. You'd like to be able to take an independent device in, handheld device, yeah, and be able to OCR that's your fine, ballot. That's one question over here. Yeah. So I remember hearing some discussion some time ago about actually including photographs of candidates. Candidates. This would kind of be good for someone who has a reading disability or something of that sort. And so <clears throat> I don't remember where I heard this, but I thought this was a subject that was up for debate. You obviously can't do it with a proposition or anything, but... I, I haven't heard anything about doing that. I haven't heard anyone seriously propose that. I mean, people's reading disabilities, um, unless you think about a touch screen, this would be Automark or DRE, is you, sh you should be able to get larger fonts. And if you actually have trouble reading, if, like if, you, if, you're, if, you, if you're quasi illiterate, right. the headphones. <coughs> so the headphones can tell you that, I mean, yeah. and it can give you feedback. I mean, if you do it properly, I mean, certainly the Automark will give you feedback. It's a, you know, you say, you, you hear it and you can just say yes, push this button, push that button. So, so yeah, the Automark should work for somebody who, who uh, is not literate or has literacy problems or language problems, right. you know, doesn't, isn't fluent in English. Although even someone who isn't <coughs> fluent in English should be able to recognize proper names. There, there could be problems with ballot, uh, with uh, initiatives and things like that. But isn't it also true that um, the disabled are a smaller percentage of the voting populace, so their effect on effective errors in their votes um, are less significant than errors in the general populace? One, you know, a two percent error among the handicapped population and a tenth of a percent error against the general population probably won't change an election. Well, I don't. I mean, that's an interesting question. Um, I'll counter the current fiasco in Minnesota. If two percent, if there's a two percent error among the um, the disabled voting population, there only has to be. Uh, 2,500 disabled voters in the whole state flip that right. congressional election. Right. Well, yeah, as we've seen, very close elections that could matter. But um, what I was the reason I was thinking about this was that I have a feeling that a lot of people with disabilities still don't come to the polls to vote. I think most of them still use absentee ballots, but I don't have any figures on that. I, I mean, I know that when I was a poll worker, we had only one person with a disability who voted. Of course, this is on the Stanford campus. And he was in a wheelchair. And so he could have used an optical scan ballot perfectly fine. He didn't need a DRE at all. Can I respond to that comment? Yes. The point is that no, every election counting system will have some error. Yes. A tenth of a percent error in that Minnesota vote would have far swamped the one percent error among the 2,500 disabled. OK. People. That was the point. Um, anyway. Uh, whether or not people with disabilities tend to vote very much in these, you know, in precincts and so on, uh, the fact of the matter is that HAVA has this requirement. And you might, you know, the whole other interesting discussion is how did that get into HAVA. There are a number of things that got into HAVA that are, I think, very interesting, like the fact that the IEEE has, has a reserved seat on the TGDC. How that got into HAVA is another interesting su subject, which I won't go into right now, but happy to talk about later. Um, or how... Uh, some of the supporting uh, committees, like the Senate's committee or the Board of Advisors for the EAC. Um, for example, the Board of Advisors, which I am on, 
There are four seats which are designated under HAVA to be for technical people. I'm the first person with any technical credentials to be on that board, first. It's just been completely ignored. How do they define technical? Well, I don't know, but certainly the other people weren't. Right. <laughs> I mean, the That's person, I mean, for example, Nancy Pelosi has a seat which is still empty. She has one of the technical seats, and the previous occupant was Barbara Arnwine, who's a civil rights attorney. I mean, she's a really wonderful person, but she's not a technical person. So, um, there's been, I mean, getting technical people into these committees has been really hard. The technical, the TGDC, the Technical Guidance Development Committee, which came out with the draft standards, it was a real struggle getting Ron Revest and then David Wagner onto that, and now Kim Kaner's on it, but... He joined it after they finished the, the standards. But these are three computer scientists. But 2005 standards didn't have their input. I believe that's right. The Populex, and, and you see it, by the way, the 2007 standards is just completely different from everything that came before it, completely. Now, the Populex, I just want to mention quickly, is another. It's a ballot generating device. That also works like a DRE with the headphones and yada, yada. Um, but instead of marking an optical scan ballot, it prints out a ballot. The, the drawback with the Populix, there are a couple. One is that it doesn't have the same kind of things as the ballots that people vote on who, who are voting without having to use a, uh, one of these devices. And also, it, it, it just prints out the numbers of the positions you voted for. You can still verify it, but you have to know what the numbers correspond to. I mean, it's, it's a lot better, I think, than a DRE, but it, it, it has some usability issues. What did we learn? Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> and that's something you learn often, isn't it? So, remote voting has been pushed as a replacement for DREs. Now, there are fundamental problems with any kind of remote voting. Vote selling, coercion, no voter feedback, and forgery. Those are just to name four. Um, vote by mail. I mean, I remember, I mean, I, I was doing vote by mail when I was living here. Um, as a way to avoid voting on DREs. No, it's a form of protest. But a lot of people now are saying, oh, you don't want DREs? Vote by mail. And so Oregon's entirely vote by mail. Parts of Washington also are entirely vote by mail. And the Santa Clara County Registrar of Voters is pushing vote by mail. And uh, again, you can kind of see one of the reasons they're doing this is that the path we're going down or trying to go down with these other machines is to have more requirements. They don't want them. But registrars of voters hate paper, and vote by mail is paper. Yep. Yep. But it's a lot cheaper than having uh, these precinct-based systems. What is it? If you just throw it away, throw away the paper. Right. Yeah. And internet voting now. Get rid of paper. Internet voting is. Well, I won't be too explicit about it, but um, there's been a big push for quite a while for military and citizens living abroad to vote over the Internet. Now, they've already got the problems of absentee voting, so you know, you're not going to get rid of that if you're not living here. CERB is a project which was pr being uh, implemented by the Department of Defense for the 2004 election, uh, which basically would have let people living abroad vote from their own computers, you know, from a cyber cafe, any place as long as it was a Windows machine. 
You couldn't use a Mac. Didn't work for Mac. Over the internet. Now, um, fortunately, a few of us were brought in to look at this, and there was a paper that was written in 04, um, Avi Rubin, David Jefferson, David Wagner and I were the co-authors. Uh, and much to our surprise, uh, as a result of this paper, I believe, the project was killed. Um, now, I have to say, the people working on CERVE, they knew it was a hard problem. I mean, th I think they understood a lot of the issues, but they had been given this mandate by Congress to make it possible for people, especially the military, to vote over the Internet. And, I mean, I remember a few, uh, some years back, I was, I was speaking at a, um, an event for women in, in, in uh, legislative offices for some, this is, I forget what, why, why we were doing this. And I was asked to talk about what's it like to be a woman in computer science, and I didn't really want to talk about that. I wanted to talk about voting. So I managed to get one line in at the end, which, say, which I said, if you have internet voting, it'll be a disaster. And afterwards, people came up to me and said, what? Everyone's telling us that internet voting is the way to go. And um, in fact, that's the Democratic Party, at least parts of it believe. So the, the head of the Michigan Democratic Party is convinced, and it doesn't matter what you say to him, that more young people will get involved with the Democratic Party if they can vote over the internet. And in fact, in the 04 primary, that's exactly what happened. Internet voting was allowed in Michigan. It was one of several options. There was a lawsuit brought by an African-American on the basis this discriminated against poor people because they were less likely to have computers. And it just so happened I happened to be in Washington at the time, and I actually got to testify for seven and a half minutes in front of the Democratic National Committee. And, um, you know, they just didn't, I talked about the security issues. They said, well, what about serve? And I said, I mean, I knew, I mean, I couldn't say we're coming out with a report to kill it, but I said, you know, that's got problems too, but I just don't think they believe it. Um, and they were going to do it again in 08, and the only reason they didn't was that the Michigan legislature did what California did, and they moved the primary early, and there wasn't time. However, Democrats abroad did hold their primary over the Internet, uh, and in fact, they were, provided the, they were in coots with the Michigan people, and they used the same system that the Michi Michigan would have used. Washington State, the Secretary of State, is pushing Internet voting right now. It's got law in front of the legislature to allow some, some I think, some testing of Internet voting. Uh, Senator Nelson from Florida has talked about introducing a bill in the uh, federal, you know, state, in the, in the, in, in, in the Senate, um, you know, the U.S. Senate, for allowing Internet voting, but he hasn't at the, as of this point. And in Maryland, there's a proposal before the legislature to study Internet voting. So this keeps on popping up, internet voting. So David Dill has another petition, and uh, I urge you all to sign this petition. Uh, it's not condemning internet voting. What it says is, if you're going to have internet voting, there are certain conditions that it needs to satisfy. Namely, it must be verifiably accurate, even though the client system cannot be guaranteed of being free of malicious code, must prevent large-scale denial of service attacks, must prevent undetectable changes to votes, should be reliable, unforgeable, unchangeable voter verified paper records that can be used for audits, and the entire system must be reliable. Now, I forgot to say on this previous slide, I forgot to talk about Okaloosa County, Florida. Okaloosa County, Florida did have internet voting in the 2008 election for president. What they did was they, had, they set up kiosks in a few key places, and 
this is for the military. I, I, they didn't have a lot of people participating, but the people who came in to participate, they had to live in Okaloosa County in the first place. They had to be near a kiosk in the second place, and they had to be willing to do it in the third place. But they came in, they voted in these kiosks, and it did produce paper, and the paper was sent to the registrar voters of Okaloosa County. Uh, Alec Yassensack, some of you may know, is a computer security guy. He's now at University of Southern Alabama. He was a consultant and a big uh, supporter of this. Um, and, uh, and he said that they did a recount. They recounted all of them, and they matched the initial result. It wasn't a lot of ballots. Now, they, don't st they still don't have a, an audit provision in Florida, so there's no guarantee if they do this again that it will be audited. They just did this recount to say, well, you see, it worked. Um, my personal concern is that this kind of thing is a slippery slope because it had lots of, I mean, it had kiosks, it had paper, the paper was flown in, even though there was, if there had been a problem, there would have been no way to fix it. Um, I believe when they say there wasn't a problem, but you can just see what's going to be down the line. It's not going to be like that. I mean, election officials aren't going to have kiosks. First of all, you can't have kiosks everywhere, and the people who are, who, who, who in some sense need this the most are the ones who are out in the field somewhere where they're not going to get kiosks. So one, um, one idea that a number of people have talked about is, um, is to make it possible to use the internet or web for people to download ballots, which they would then print out, fill in by hand, and mail in. So that cuts the time, which is a real issue, by half. You don't have to wait for the mail to get to the military person or the person overseas. You just, they just download it, and then you have to send it back. Now, there are still issues with that. You have to worry about, about keeping track of all the different ballots. You have to worry about quality of the paper, and so on and so forth. So, you know, it's not a perfect solution, but it doesn't have as many security risks as actually casting your vote over the Internet has. So that's where the petition is. What have we learned? We should be running our elections in a more businesslike fashion. Now, when you think about how we've run elections in this country, it's been really hokey for a long time. You know, we get very elderly volunteers to go in, and I have to tell you, it's exhausting. I mean, I didn't get home until 11 o'clock at night. I was up at 6 in the morning. Well, I was there at 6 in the morning. God, I was up. Uh, you know, I, I, I managed to have lunch at the cafeteria, you know, above where we were, you know, above the, the commons room, but I didn't have dinner until 11. I mean, I was just deadbeat. And, you know, I'm not young, but I'm not as old as some of these people who are working there, and I just, I think it's amazing that they do that. But anyway, we haven't been running our elections. I mean, if we, if we ran businesses in this country the way we run elections, we would have had major problems long before now. I mean, you know. We are. <laughs> yeah, maybe we are. Yeah. Maybe I shouldn't say that. Right. So the notion of audits has come up, and that's something else we've learned. And that's, again, when we started this, we weren't thinking specifically of audits. But once it's, again, it's one of these ideas, when you think about it, it's obvious. You've got to audit the damn things, especially if you're going to use computers. So they're, kind of, they're, they're sort of hot audits and cold audits. And a hot audit, I think, is just critical. You want to be able to audit the election before you certify the results. Because if you find there's a problem with the audit after you've certified the results, you're screwed, right? You can't do anything. Now, there are some states which have such short windows. I mean, Florida is one of them between when the election occurs and when it has to be certified, that's very hard to do a decent audit. So we're going to have to change the laws, too. I mean, this stuff is just a can of worms. Cold audits are a good idea 
because you, they can be used to improve the process in the future. But it doesn't deal, they don't deal with the whole issue of what if you find a major problem. And again, just, I put this in, audits are not recounts because people sometimes get them confused. An audit is less than a recount. It's looking at a subset of the ballots to try to determine if the results report, well basically what I think an audit should determine is was the person who was declared the winner the actual winner? I care less about whether or not the numbers are precisely correct. I care more about getting the right person. And, um, and so the question is, how do you do this? Well, one thing to think about is if you're going to do an audit, the closer the election is, the more you have to look at. I mean, in Michigan, you have to look at everything, right? I mean, Minnesota, rather. If the election is very close, a small perturbation can change the outcome. If it's very far apart, you have to really change a lot of ballots to change the outcome. So the farther apart it is, the fewer precincts or machines or whatever unit you use for your audit you have to look at. So people come up with different notions. In California, for a long time, we've had a 1% audit requirement, manual, random manual audit requirement in, in, the, in the law. And uh, this was put in, I think, when optical scans came in. I mean, it's been there for a while. And it's kind of interesting because when California moved to paperless DREs, election officials said, well, we, audit, you know, we, print, we can print out the results at the end of the day and, man, and hand count them. And that was considered an audit. I mean, really. Anyway, so you can have pre-assigned numbers like, like California currently has. You can have tiered, which was what Rush Holt, who's been pushing legislation for years to try to uh, uh, improve the situation, uh, has had in his last bill, and I think in the one that's going to be introduced shortly, where you have different levels according to how close the race is. Now, this is just an approximation, and obviously it's going to be suboptimal in a number of cases. Some cases it'll be too many, some cases it'll be too few. Or you can have statistically significant, where you get a statistician involved and you compute, well, what really should we be doing? And when you, you know, statistically significant already, that's going to set off alarms, so you call risk limiting. That's uh, less you know, that's going gonna, gonna to scare people less. And you have to have a notion of escalation if you uncover a problem. So you start with a small number. If you find a problem, do you have to do a full recount? Maybe yes, maybe no. Maybe you can just expand the size of your audit. And, and so that's a notion of escalation. You have to have all of this defined beforehand. You don't want to be doing this on the fly when you've got the ballots there, when you're sort of making up the rules as you go along. You certainly never don't want to do that. So issues relating to audits. Usability issues, the ballots must be easy to count. Transparent, easily observable. So the way that I would do audits, the way that they're done in New Hampshire, the way they're done in a number of places, the way they were done in Minnesota, I believe, is you sort them into piles according to the candidate, and then you, can, then you, count, you, you count out piles of a certain size, and then you count the number of those piles, and you can repeat this process. You can televise it, you can videotape it, you can have other people look at it as you're sorting the ballots by candidate. You can hold it up to a camera. You can have different people, you know, from both sides or how many sides there are, go through the piles and make sure that you've done it correctly. So it's a very transparent way of doing things, done correctly. And again, you know, you can do things, you can do things badly or do them well. A continuous roll, these VPATs are much harder. You've got to have someone look at the, at the continuous roll and say one vote for Gore, one vote for Bush, and someone else is making marks. Now, you can, you can do it, but it's, uh, it's not, I think, as transparent. It's, it's more prone to error. 
Uh, and then you've got these problems, what happens if these VPATs are messed up or unclear or smeared or whatever. So statistically significant, most election officials are not statisticians. Most people aren't statisticians. So how do you deal with it? Uh, are the tiers the right way to go? Do you want to have a table lookup, which is like lots and lots and lots of little tiers? Or do you want to have a call a statistician hotline? And, you know, I mean, I think these are legitimate policy questions. I don't know what the right answer is. I mean, I'd like to have a statistician personally, but if you've got, you know, places all over the, how, I don't know if there are enough statisticians to go around. Is there some way of simplifying the mathematics? Now, another notion that's come in, which I think is a nice notion, is you want to allow challenges to have a certain number of free, uh, free uh, challenges. So if I'm going to rig an election and I know you're going to do a random uh, audit, and given that precincts are different sizes, what I might do is just mess with the biggest precincts until I know that I can flip it around on the hope that the random selection won't choose any of them because there are very few of them. So in order to avoid that, you would like to have a certain number of free challenges so that if someone sees something which looks really questionable, you can just say, and check that one too. So. Long Beach County, Florida, hmm. <coughs> right. There are chain of custody issues throughout elections which you have to worry about. And then there's accuracy. And I just thought I would mention, because Minnesota is something that's on everybody's mind, that Andrew Appel did, did an analysis of the optical scan and manual recount. And according to his numbers, they were both extremely accurate. But that means if they recount it again, it could flip the election. That's within the statistical error. Well, basically, I think that election is tied. Yes. Yeah. What have we learned? Logic does not necessarily prevail. When does logic prevail? <laughs> well, the Stafford classrooms, right? <laughs> no? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there are lots and lots of examples I could give about logic not prevailing in this field. But uh, so I thought I would choose something which is ongoing. And that's New Jersey. New Jersey has a strong audit law. It was passed in January 2008. It's actually one of the best in the country. Mandatory random manual audits. And the law says for federal and statewide elections, audits must ensure with at least 99% statistical power that a 100% manual recount of the voter verifiable paper records would not alter the electoral outcome reported by the audit. Now, that's very strong. And other elections, this is just for federal and state, the 99, other elections have a 90% requirement. But they only, they only have paperless DREs right now, even though they have a law on the books mandating voter verified paper, paper records by January 2008. They don't have them. Instead, what they have is the Sequoia ABC Advantage paperless DRE. And in the February 08 primary, the Republican and Democratic totals differed between the election tally and the internal paper tapes on about 60 machines statewide. They just differed. The total outcomes were the same, but they just differed slightly. So Sequoia initially said it was poll worker error. Mercer County clerks and others called for an investigation, statewide investigation. By the way, it's never happened. Princeton computer science professor Ed Felton offered to investigate. He actually did a little bit of analysis himself and, and, and published some results on the web. The Constitutional Officers Association of New Jersey offered him machines and then Sequoia threatened Felton with, with legal action. And so the New Jersey officials withdrew their offer. Meanwhile, independent of all this, in 2004, there was a court case that started to try to get rid of the DREs in New Jersey, completely independent. 
And the argument is because there was no way of knowing if the DRE counted the votes as cast, there is no proof that the voting machines comply with the constitutional or statutory laws that require that all votes be, be counted as cast. That was basically the argument. By the way, this case is still ongoing. Uh, as there was now, so this case is in the courts, and then they discover these February primaries where there's an obvious screw up. Uh, the judge ordered this, the, the Sequoia DREs to be inspected. Initially said the results remain confidential because of trade secrets, and this is something you hear over and over again. You can't look at this stuff because of trade secrets. Um, subsequently, she said that the, that the results could, that the report could be published 30 days after it was delivered to the court, namely October 2nd, 2008. So Professor Andrew Appel of Princeton led the effort and became the plaintiff's primary expert witness. Sequoia was not a party to the lawsuit. Remember this 2004 lawsuit. It was people, it was the plaintiffs against the state. Nothing to do with Sequoia. They weren't a party. However, they complained to the judge about the possibility of the report, so the report was again suppressed. And it was, it was, reduced, it was released basically two weeks after it was supposed to have been released. Uh, a redacted version was released. But the redacted report is pretty negative. You can find it on the Princeton website. The machine can be hacked in, uh, by installing a ROM chip or a Z80 processor in about seven minutes. I mean, basically, Appel sh showed how to do it. You can insert a virus via an audit, uh, an audit, ballot, via, via audit ballot cartridges. There are design flaws that cause votes not to be counted or allow poll workers to commit fraud. And the results cartridges can be manipulated to change votes after the polls close before results from different precincts are, 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 are accumulated. Sloppy software practices can lead to error and insecurity. Wiley's ITA report was not rigorous. Programming from, primary, from the primary, problems from the primary were caused by two different programming errors and had the effect of disenfranchising voters. And then he added this, 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 this two conclusions. One, that the Sequoia ABC advantage was too insecure to use in New Jersey. And two, that they should move to precinct count optical scan. Well, that didn't go over too well. Secretary of State issued a press release a few days later, or, well, in October, expressing complete confidence in the state's voting process and in the security of its voting machine, and referred to a report by consultant CME professor Michael Seamus, who called the report a lengthy diatribe against electronic voting. He, he complained that the report did not conduct an equivalent review of precinct count optical scan, and it didn't, in all fairness. He claimed that DREs cannot, he claimed that the audit, that, uh, that Appel's claim that the DREs cannot be audited was false, because, according to Seamus, if the audit mechanism is working, and the software is verified to be identical to the certified version, the machine is completely auditable. It's paperless DREs. This is what Michael Seamus said. I don't agree with him. But even if he's right, he said there are a lot of ifs there which haven't happened. And nobody is verifying that it's identical because that, that has not been implemented. Um, he had a lot of other, he actually acknowledged, if you read Seamus's report, which is, there's the URL, he, at, some, at various points, acknowledges that Andrew was right, but says, these are the ways to fix it. Again, he can give all kinds of ways to fix it, things that just aren't, in, aren't being practiced. Aren't in, I mean, you've got, again, elderly election officials, elderly poll workers working in these places. They're not going to do most of these things. Um, then New Jersey was talking about the cost of replacing them, and they came up with inflated figures, assuming that we had to have uh, uh, two scanners for each polling place, which isn't true. And then in 2008, in, in December 08, they defeated a bill that would have, they, they 
a bill that would have removed the voter verified requirement from the legislation was defeated, but, and I should say, and in January 09, the Secretary of State decided to purchase retrofitted DREs, again, the same vendor, with a small window which showed VPATs, small windows, I just took that from some of the press releases. Um, and then the state moved to dismiss the lawsuit as moot. Then the governor announced budget cuts and said, we're not going to add the printers after all. And then the assembly voted to waive already missed deadline for voter verification. And that's where things stand in New Jersey. So I don't know if you follow that whole history. It's kind of convoluted. But the point is that they have laws which they haven't been following. And they're using machines which, which, where they know there was a problem. Even Seamus isn't arguing that. And where um, they have expert witnesses who have pointed out that these machines are insecure. So I thought I would conclude with a couple of slides, one on research problems. There are a lot of interesting research problems in this area. So we need, you know, as I said, there are no perfect voting systems. We can get better ones. They, we need the, there are various aspects to work on, secure and reliability, usability, and when use, with usability, it's not just people who vote, but it's also the poll workers. And we need to have, have usability applied to audits as well. We need systems that make it easy to conduct audits and recounts. Accessible, I mean, again, we need to, have, we need to satisfy the, the requirements for people with disabilities. And, you know, and I think that it's fair to say people with disabilities should be able to vote independently. I don't have a problem with that. We need to have ways of doing audits that are understandable for election officials, easy to use, and, that, and, and where you have some, level, some notion of reliability of the audits. And what can you do? Get involved. And uh, you know, just let me, just uh, full disclosure, I'm on the board of Verified Voting. But it's, uh, it was started by David Dill, again, who's, who's here at Stanford. And I think it's a very good organization. A lot of techies are involved with it. And Something you might be interested in doing, if you just want to sort of get your feet wet on this, there's going to be an EAC Standards Board meeting at the end of this month. The agenda's on the EAC Standards Board website. And there's going to be a webcast. And I think this is going to actually be an interesting meeting. The Standards Board consists of election officials from, from all the states, just election officials. Um, but there's going to be some interesting stuff discussed, and it'll also give you an insight into what's going on. So that's my last slide. And I guess it's about time. But I'm sorry. Yes. One of the things that keeps bothering me about For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.